0: Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and Lord, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for a wonderful time of praise, we thank you for all that's going on, Lord, from nursery all the way through our seniors' ministry, and Lord, it has all sprung out of your word, and so Lord, as we study now, as we look at the word of life, may you speak to our hearts and minds, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is our second week of a two-part series looking at the rapture. And why are we looking at the rapture? Well, we don't talk a whole lot about it. Maybe we should. But we're looking at it for two reasons. It's one of the glorious doctrines of the church, Jesus Christ coming again. Very exciting. And the other reason is we're in 1 Thessalonians. We're teaching through the Bible, so uh, we're kind of looking at it because that's where we are. Because everyone in the room is probably at a different space, some people have never heard of the rapture, some of you have studied it deeply, and then everybody's probably somewhere in between, I'm trying to answer four questions. What is the rapture? Who will be a part of it? When is it? And why does it matter? I answered the first two questions last week by saying the rapture is a literal event that will happen sometime in the future. It's the very next event on God's calendar. There are no prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Uh, Literally, Jesus could come at any time and snatch or rapture his church. Now, who are the people that will be a part of the rapture? Anyone who trusted in Christ from the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell, Acts chapter 2, until the time when those living are drawn away, which could include us right now. Paul thought he could be included. Let's read about the event one more time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll skip to verse 15. For this I say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, there will be a church group Alive on the earth shall be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet him in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And Paul says comfort one another with these words. Paul did not write this letter to give a blow by blow account of all the prophetic events that will lead to the return of Christ. That was not the purpose. This was a comforting letter that Jesus is coming again. This is not the return of Christ that we see in Matthew 24, where every eye will see him. Where his coming will be like lightning from the east to the west. Where Jesus said, unless those days were short, no flesh would survive. The rapture precedes that coming by seven years. It's what Jesus said the conditions would be like a thief in the night. Peter said that, Paul said it here. It would be at a time when no one would expect the Son of Man And it would be like the days of Noah. Remember, they were eating, they were drinking, they were giving in marriage, they were playing Pokemon, right? Uh, Just to get you guys up to speed, during the work week here, you would not believe it. There are people from the corporation next door sitting all around our campus. So I walked in one day after lunch, these guys have badges on and all, they're in their 30s and 40s, I'm like, can I help you? Uh, We're playing Pokemon. And that's gone on for a month now, can you believe it? Uh, I think Pokemon passed pornography this week in most hits on the internet. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. (laughs) The rapture is called the Blessed Hope of the Church. It's John 14, 1, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. It's 1 Corinthians 15, where we will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. Anyone who's died in Christ, your loved ones who have died, they're in heaven now to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Uh, They will... They will, will, their spiritual form, their resurrected bodies will meet the Lord. We who are alive and remain, I hope it's us. We will all get there at the same time. It is a blessed hope. That's why the early church coined this word, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And they were words of comfort to an early church. That leaves two questions. When is the rapture? This is what everybody wants to know. It's what everybody fights over. And why does it matter? Does it really matter? And I want to get to the second question first. Because here's the problem. Whenever you teach on prophecy, you're you're kind of moving information across the table, and that's not what I want to do. You know, I don't want to take all this information and dump it on you, because that's all head knowledge, and knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. I want to get to the heart behind this. Why does prophecy exist? Why do we do this? Why do we care? In fact, some people don't care. They say, prophecy's been so divisive, we don't even want to talk about it. Churches have made this agreement. They call it like a pantheology. Uh, I don't know who's right, but I think it's all going to pan out in the end. And I want to tell you, I don't think that's the approach God wants us to take. I think there's another approach. And I think the heart of it lies in a young teenager who lived 3,000 years ago. His name was Daniel. Daniel was of the best best and brightest of Israel. He was a teenager. Daniel would live a very expected life of him. He was born into privilege. He was well-learned. He would marry. He would excel. He would serve God in the temple. And one day, all of that changed. Life changed on a dime. When he writes in Daniel 1, that Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem. You have to understand what that word means. We turn on CNN or cable, and we look at what's going on in France or Belgium, around the world, in terrorism, we see 40 or 50 people die, and we're aghast. Can you imagine your whole city and everything you know destroyed? Can you imagine watching the articles of the temple taken to Babylon? Daniel would spend his formative years, in fact, his entire life in a land with foreign gods and a foreign king and a foreign language, and he would never return to Jerusalem. What defies logic in my mind is Daniel never succumbed to Babylon. Daniel stayed true to the God of Israel. He had the words of Jeremiah, that was his Bible. He had three friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Very important. Josh McDowell brought this up Wednesday night. Uh, Yeah, we need Jesus, but we need other people. We need friends on this journey because we can't do it alone. You know it, I know it. Whenever we move to isolation, like Eve, Like David, we sin, it's not good for us. And Daniel excelled far above all the Chaldeans. He influenced three kings Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, became prime minister. He flourished in Babylon. And here's what we have in common with Daniel. You and I live in Babylon. Yes, the United States is a wonderful nation. Yes, we are an anomaly where our founding fathers believed in God. And, you know, we don't know if they were all believers, some were deists, but we know there's never been a nation like the United States. But outside of Israel, there is no theocracy. There is no spiritual nation. You need to understand that. You and I live in Babylon. The schools we go to, the corporations we work for, do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And for every young person in the room, you can make it. If Daniel made it, you can make it. You know, I got saved. One day I'm in a college basketball locker room as a heathen, the next day I'm a Christian. So don't say Pastor Bob doesn't know what it's like. I was 21 years old. I had the same hormones you have, the same things raging in me that you do. You can make it, you can flourish in Babylon. And God lays out this paragraph uh, of Bible prophecy from Persia to Greece to Rome to a consortium and maybe in our day of a revived European empire and the coming of the Son of Man. In chapter 10, Daniel's visited by an angel. The angel says, do not fear, Daniel, for the, for the first day that you set your heart to understand, to understand prophecy, and to humble yourself before God to pray, Listen to this. Your words were heard. Isn't that incredible? Do you ever pray and wonder if anybody's listening? you ever wonder if God cares? Sometimes you don't see answered prayer. The angel not only tells Daniel, from the moment you spoke, your words were heard. He goes through an entire description of what goes on in the spiritual realm. How principalities and power stopped him from coming. It's pretty amazing. You look behind the scenes. Prayer changes things. God hears our prayers. And the angel says, And I have come because of your words. And Daniel sees the future of history. He can look through the carters of time. But he writes this in Daniel 10:19 in response to the angel's visit. He said, And when he had spoken these words to me, I was strengthened. See, this is what this is about. This is a comfort. Comfort one another with these words. To be strengthened. When I study Genesis 1, when I look at the creation, when I look at what God has done in the created world, it strengthens me. I know where I came from. And the same with prophecy. When I look at what God has laid out for us, it reminds me that God is in control. Abraham's called the friend of God. And you know what God told Abraham? He said, Abraham, I'm telling you, everything that happens before it happens Because that's what we do in relationship. Jesus said the same thing. No longer do I call you my servants, but I call you my friends. A servant, a master doesn't tell his servants what he's about to do, but I have told you all things, Jesus said. Daniel's life was transformed by the prophecies that he saw. It changed his conduct, it changed his character. If you get a chance, You can turn to 2 Peter, if not, I think it will be up on the screen for you. Peter, who walked with Jesus, who denied Jesus, writes this in chapter 3 of his second epistle. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. Peter's writing about the end of the world. He's talking about, it's amazing, a fisherman talking about nuclear capabilities, but we won't get into that right now. He's saying everything's going to burn. You know how we used to say that? In light of the fact that Jesus is coming soon, what manner of person ought you to be? How does it change your decisions, your life choices, your finances, and what you'll do with your life. C.I. Schofield lived a sorry lifestyle before his conversion. After his conversion, he became a pastor, a Bible teacher, an expositor. He started Philadelphia Biblical University, which is called Cairn now. I don't know how many people know that. But his greatest contribution to the church was in 1909 when he published the Schofield Reference Bible. It was the standard for years before all the study Bibles today. He's one of the few scholars in his writings and in the study Bible that said, we can't even talk about Bible prophecy because one day Israel will have to be back in her land. It was unthinkable at that time. But Schofield gave an analogy in one of his talks, and he said, can you imagine a dad putting his child on his lap? And telling the child, I love you, and I care about you, I provide for you, but let me tell you about the estate. Let me tell you what I'm going to leave you. Let me tell you what dad's about to do and what's going on. He said the idea that we wouldn't care about Bible prophecy was to say, dear friends, if that child just shut out all the larger part of the father's mind, in other words, if the child just said, look, you feed me, you clothe me, that's all I want to know about you, But he didn't want to know the father's purpose and the father's thoughts from his life. How formative upon the character of that child would the father be? That is what we do when we refuse to give attention to prophetic truth. While on the other hand, nothing brings us into such molding intimacy with God, such molding intimacy with God as the believing of the study of prophecy. God must love it when we get in there and understand what he's about to do at the end of the age. When I close this message, I'll give one other reason why the rapture matters, but let me get to the first question. When is it? This is what everybody wants to know. This is what all the battles are about. I used to cringe when Chuck Smith would come to our pastor's conference, there'd be a Q&A, and some knucklehead would stand up and say, uh, Pastor Chuck, when's the rapture coming? Can you imagine what that must do to the person asked? It's got to puff you up, Right? Now, both people should have understood, no one knows. If anyone asks you when Jesus is coming, one of the answers you can give is no one knows, because that's what he gave. Matthew 24, Acts chapter 1, uh, Lord, will you now restore Israel and the nations? Uh, no, it's not for you to know times and seasons. No one knows. Not even, Jesus said, only the Father in heaven. That's pretty much the story. So you could say no one knows, or you could say he's coming soon, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Believe it or not, Tuesday, I'm off Monday. Teach the rapture Sunday, off Monday. Tuesday, I go down to my mailbox, I get my mail. And in my mail, and I'm not making this up, truth is stranger uh, than fiction sometimes, there's a book in my mail slot, 17 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen on September 22nd, 2017. I mean, I could not have timed this better. And just when I think nobody will write these books because nobody surely can buy them anymore, it just keeps happening. I've lived through 88 reasons why the rapture would happen in 1988, 89 reasons why it would happen in 89. Whoever bought those books must have been in every Ponzi scheme uh, since that time. Harold Camping's date setting in the 90s and early 2000s. And then when we moved here to Brandywine Drive, no lie, our first service, Britain Lake had a truck out there. The end of the world was coming in September, and here we go again. And every time it happens, the church gets a black eye. Date setting comes and goes, and people say, I knew the Bible wasn't true. So when is the rapture? We're not talking about dates. We're talking about timing. And it all revolves... ...around this one word called tribulation. We're not talking about the tribulation that you and I go through. We're not talking about run-of-the-mill tribulation, suffering in this world. You know, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but, you know, be comforted, I've overcome the world. We're talking about a definitive time period in history where the wrath of God will be poured out... ...in such a way where Jesus said, if this time was not shortened, no flesh would survive... It's the most documented time in the Bible, it's a seven year period, it's called the day, that day, 75 times in the Old Testament, the day of Christ, it's most common use, we already looked at it in Peter, is the day of the Lord. All the prophets spoke about it. Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 13, chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 13, chapter 30, Joel 1, 2, 11, 31, I feel like I'm reading school closings. Um, Zechariah talked about it Malachi Zephaniah chapter 1 is very descriptive it says the great day of the Lord is near it is near and hastens quickly the noise of the day of the Lord is bitter where the mighty men shall cry out it is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness, a day of gloominess, of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against fortified cities against high towers And God said, I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. It's very interesting that Peter in an upper room with 120 people on the day of Pentecost, the church's birth. Fire falls from heaven. There's a mighty rushing wind. They begin speaking in other languages. And there's people in the day of Pentecost there, and Peter gets up to preach a sermon. And if you think about it, there's so much Peter could have said. But he said, this is what Joel was speaking about. It's pretty amazing. Joel was speaking about the day of the Lord. And Peter said this in Acts chapter 2. He said, this is what Joel said would happen. It will come to pass in the last day, says God, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see dreams and visions. Old men will dream. And on your men servants and maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Now get this. God said, I'll show wonders in the heavens above. Signs on the earth, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon and the blood. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come the pass that whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. Peter said, this is what Joel spoke about. That... that There is coming an outpouring on the earth of God's spirit. Prophetic gifts will be ushered into the church. And it's going to last from this day, Pentecost, until the day of the Lord. Literally, until that time period. Very interesting. And then, of course, here in Thessalonians, Paul writes about it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Concerning times and seasons, it's no need that I write to you, brethren, for that's in the Lord's command. For you understand perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. There it is again. Where they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. You're not of that day. You are sons of the light. You are not in darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Let us be ready. For those who sleep, sleep at night. They get drunk at night. But we're of the day... And let us, therefore, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but obtained salvation through Jesus Christ. And again, these are comforting words. It would not be comforting to say, don't worry about it, guys, we're going to go through a seven-year period where the wrath of God's coming on the world, and no flesh will survive. Aren't you guys excited? He said, no, God's going to keep us from that time. Jesus said in Olivet Discourse, it would be a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen. And that was not 70 AD when Titus and the Roman legions came. That was not that day. Obviously, it was not the conditions that no flesh would survive. So the tribulation is a documented period. It's Revelation 6 through 13. Why does it matter? It matters because God will use that period to end the age. That will be the end of the age. And it has two purposes. Number one, the restoration of Israel. Now, we love Israel. We pray for Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But let me tell you this. Israel is scheduled to be deceived one final and last time. A one-world ruler will arise, offer peace to Israel for at least the first three and a half years. And she will be deceived. Israel has longed for peace for so long, she will be deceived The church will be raptured and Jeremiah 30 verse 7 will come to pass the time of Jacob's trouble. You have to understand the role Israel plays in this. If you look at Matthew 24, it is very Jewish. A time of Jacob's trouble. The Olivet Discourse talks about the Jews, their flight not being on the Sabbath... If you understand Daniel's words, then you can understand. Daniel's people, the elect, it goes on and on and on. Revelation, 144,000 from tribes. We're not of tribes. It's very Jewish in its nature. One of the questions about the rapture, the Left Behind series kind of put this out is, um, what happens if you miss the rapture? What happens if you wake up tomorrow and we're all gone? It'd be a bummer, wouldn't it? Um, Can people get saved after the rapture? Absolutely. It may be the greatest revival in all history. 144,000 Jewish evangelists. How about this? An angel preaching the everlasting gospel. I think they can do a better job than we do. Peter said you can call out on the name of the Lord until that last day and be saved. It's still the age of grace. Revelation says they're going to come from every nation, every people, every tribe, And every tongue. Second thing the tribulation does, it's God's judgment on the nations. Um, You look at the Holocaust. You look at Rwanda. You look at these genocides. And you say, well, how can it happen? And I remember one person saying, once you don't believe in God, everything's possible. And anything's possible. And people think they've gotten away with this. But we look in Revelation and we look at political Babylon, religious Babylon, financial Babylon, all in a day will be destroyed. This is the wrath of Almighty God on a Christ rejecting world. Now, the question is where in the world is the church? It's like Waldo. You can't find it in your Bible. The church is nowhere to be found. After Revelation 2 and 3, letter of the seven churches, the church disappears fact, and I hold to this because it looks that way to me, and sometimes common sense is the best sense. Right after Revelation 2 and 3, chapter 4 says, after these things, now John was told to write the things that thou hast seen, the things that are, and the things that shall be. What are the things he has seen? He saw the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, that wonderful picture in Revelation 1. The things that are the seven churches, chapter two and three, and the things that shall be. Greek word, metatalda, shall be. Then he uses the same word here in chapter four. After these things, he's telling us what will happen in the far future. And it says, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me and saying, Come up here. Sounds like a kind of a prototype of the rapture, doesn't it? Trumpet, word of the Lord, come up here. He's taken into heaven, and you know what he sees? He sees the throne of God. We don't have time to get into it. A lot of imagery there, a lot of metaphors, a little bit of allegory. But the one thing he sees are 24 elders around the throne of God. I believe it's the rapture church. I believe it represents the Old Testament Tribes 12, New Testament 12 apostles. I I can teach for a day on why I think, and many scholars believe, that is the church in heaven. In fact, you are in the picture here. Kind of cool. Now, some will say that hold another view no, 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 these are angels. Well, let me read the song they sing. You tell me if these are angels. You are worthy, they're speaking to Jesus, the Lamb to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Last time I looked, angels have never been redeemed. They're in everlasting chains in Jude. Only human beings have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The Bible never says angels will reign on the earth. So what we find is that there's a series of events going on in heaven while things are going on in the earth. One of them is we're around the throne of God. We're experiencing, John 14, 1, many abiding places. But there's a second thing that has to happen that doesn't fit in any other theology. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we, believers, will all stand before the Bema seat of Christ. Hebrews 9 says, it's appointing every man to die, then the judgment. What judgment? Uh, Whenever we hear judgment, we think it's bad, right? So I walk down the hall and tell a staff member, hey, I want to see you in my office. They're like, what did I do wrong? And in my mind, I'm like, you didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I'm going to give you a raise. You didn't do anything wrong. So some of you are thinking, judgment, oh my gosh. No, you've passed from judgment. You're saved by the blood of the Lamb. Don't worry about it. But judgment has two sides. There are rewards. Evildoers are punished, and those who do well are rewarded. We will all stand before the bema seat. I've been to Corinth three times. I've seen the bema seat there. They've unearthed it. It's an elevated platform made out of marble where a magistrate would stand, and he would punish or give out rewards. The Bible has a lot to say about rewards. Some Christians are smug, like, "I don't want any rewards." The Bible has a lot to say about rewards. I'll give you one. Jesus, Luke 14. He said, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, people you normally wouldn't associate with, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be paid, ready? In the resurrection of the just. Wow. And I could give you scores and scores of verses and Parables, etc., but there will be rewards in heaven. Rewards won't get you into heaven, but what you've done by faith, you'll be rewarded for. Uh, Paul talks about in in Corinthians where it'll go through the fire. Some will be gold, silver, precious metals; others will be wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, I'm convinced when God gives the rewards, we're going to say, "Lord, uh, what did I do?" Uh, The the things we thought we'd be rewarded for, I I don't think we will. The things we don't think we'll be rewarded for, they're the ones. You know why? Because in Matthew 25, they said, Lord, when did I do all these things? He said, when you did it to the least of these. How about the unnamed innkeeper on Christmas Eve who said, you know what? There's no room, but Mary and Joseph, why don't you go back in this feed trough? We'll kind of keep it under wraps to the boss. How about the unnamed boy who surrendered his lunch so Jesus could feed 5,000? How about the friends who lowered the paralytic into a Bible study that he might be healed? How about the widow that gave all that she had? What a day that's going to be. Paul said he was running to win the race. He wasn't running to beat us out. He was running the race God had for him. Dallas Willard was asked if he believed in total depravity. He said, I believe in enough depravity. He said, I believe that I'm depraved enough to know that when I get to heaven, it will have been of no merit of my own. We're not saved by works, but our works will be judged. And God in James said he's a rewarder of those who seek him diligently. We will worship God in heaven. Now, timing. You either believe in a pre-trib rapture, which means before the tribulation. You believe in a mid-wrath or a post. Okay? So you either believe the rapture happens here, here, or here, but you have to believe it happens. You read about it in 1 Thessalonians. It's all about timing. Now, the predominant view... It's kind of like at the Phillies game, you know, they have the three hats that run around, which one's true? This is the predominant view. The predominant view, held by the church, at least 50 or 60% of believers, is that the church will go through the tribulation, Jesus will come, and it'll be the great U-turn in the sky, we'll all go up and come down with him, and then we'll reign on the earth. Uh, They kind of nuance the Greek there and say the term that John used or the term that Paul used was uh, to go out and visit, greet a dignitary at the gates and bring him in and they kind of run all their doctrine around that. Now, a great question you might have is, Pastor Bob, if that's the majority view, how could it be wrong? Here's why I think it could be wrong. Uh, The majority view was wrong in Jesus' day. They thought he was coming as a conquering king. They said... You're teaching us and you were born in the sins. They didn't understand the virgin birth from Isaiah. How could anything come from Nazareth? They didn't understand he would be a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. He was born to die. The majority view has to believe, has to believe the church replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. To believe this view, you have to believe that all the verses in the Bible about Israel have been fulfilled, and now all the blessings come upon the church. And you think, well, where did that come from? Well, it certainly didn't come from the people in this book. It didn't come from the early church or the writers of Scripture. And I could show you early church fathers who didn't believe it either. Its origin, and I'm not making this up, Google it, came from a man named Origen. He was the Bishop of Alexandria in the 2nd century. Second century. None of these guys were bad guys. They were actually great guys. They did great things for God. But he was the first to move away from the literal historical interpretation of Scripture, and he made it allegorical, especially when it came to prophecy. Augustine came along and codified it and theologized it. The Roman Catholic Church seized upon it and made themselves the kingdom of God on earth, therefore calling Rome the eternal and holy city, not Jerusalem. By the way, the Catholic Church, only the Catholic Church and the Arabs till the year 2000 were the only ones who didn't recognize, and Russia, Israel's right to exist in her lands. So when people argue and say, well, wait a second, Luther and Calvin and all the great reformers and the majority of you today, how could they all be wrong? How could they all be wrong? They could all be wrong because they were born into this system of interpretation. And by the way, the other views always existed. Let's take Luther, for example. Luther is probably the third most influential person of the last thousand years. Great man of God gave us the Reformation, salvation by grace. Uh, But if you read what Luther said about the Jews, and I will not quote it, I can't quote it. I don't want to throw him under the bus, and I can't even quote it. Let me say this: If you look up what he believed about the Jews and put it along Mein Kampf by Hitler, you would have a toss-up on which who wrote which document. Satan hates Israel. They're the apple of God's eye. He made an everlasting covenant with them. Everlasting means it never ends. In 1948, when David Ben-Gurion stood up and said, "This nation shall be called Israel was a modern-day miracle, no nation have ever ever come out of the grave." 2016, they are still a miracle. They're defending an 11-mile strip of land in a hostile territory where, really, the mission statement of all nations that surround them is their annihilation. Do we want to repeat the same mistake? Is that the theology we want to buy into? And it's not my opinion. Read Romans 9 to 11. Look, I'm a common sense guy. Has God done away with his people Israel? No, certainly not, Paul says. He said the church was grafted in. They've been set aside. Why? Because there's one final time where God will redeem them. It's Daniel's 70th week. There's another Daniel, my Jewish guide in Israel, who I've known for 20 years. He'll tell you straight up, America backs the U.S., Germany backs the U.S., but the greatest backers of the U.S. are evangelical Christians who love Israel. And it's got to boggle his mind. You know, he's got this veil over his eyes, right, whenever Moses read that, Jews have a veil over their eyes, but they can't understand us. We go there, we know the Old Testament, we love God, we sing songs, we sing them from the Old Testament, New Testament, we know more of the Old Testament than they do. In a recession in Israel one time, Calvary Chapel people sent Daniel thousands of dollars because they knew he needed the money. pay for him to come to the United States and visit some of his family that lives here. But here's the final thing I have to say about the rapture. It is the only event in my mind that can trigger what we see in our end time scenario. A one-world government, one-world system. I mean, I remember in the 80s, preachers would get up there and try and convince us of technology that was coming. Look, it's all here. It's all here. You can watch on your watch two witnesses killed in Jerusalem. It's all here. International banking, it's all here. But a one-world ruler, a one-world system, there's got to be a cataclysmic event like the rapture, If people aren't up in arms because 50 people got killed in France, what are they going to do when a billion people are gone? From every country, peasants to prime ministers, and the entire Islamic world left intact. Let me show you one final graph It's cheesy, but it's the best I could do. The rapture of the saved, the ends of church age, the very next day becomes the day of the Lord. Read the book of Revelation. There are seals, trumpets, and bowls. If you believe Jesus is coming before that, that's pre-tribulation. Some people say, no, it's the middle. I don't like hybrids to begin with, right? I don't like anything that's a hybrid. Like I said this before, either get a truck or a car, but don't get one of those truck cars, right? This is kind of like a cheesy, cowardly view. People take this view because they say, oh, that's three and a half years of peace. Yeah, it still seals trumpets and vials and go read it and see if you want to live through it. All right? That's seven years of God's wrath, not man's wrath. Then Christ returns. The Jews say, where did you get those scars in your hand? And the millennial kingdom begins that we see in Revelation. But I'm going to leave you with Peter's question. In light of all of this, what manner of persons ought we to be? If this is all true, and if all the prophecies that have come before it are true, and if this is true, and if this is what's next on the radar, what manner of persons ought we to be? Ought we to be like the rest of American culture, staring at a cell phone 24-7? piling up stuff, worrying about things. And listen, I understand we've got to live normal lives. Don't get me wrong. But I want to be like those virgins whose lamps were trimmed, who had oil in their lamps. I've been studying prophecy for 35 years. I'm as moved by it now as I was then. And I think it's possible to do both. Let's end in 1st. Thessalonians chapter 1. I've alluded to it before, but I want to read it together. Paul writes in verse 6, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. From you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. And your faith toward God has gone out, so that we don't need to say anything, For they themselves declare concerning us what matter of entry we had to you how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven. Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, when today ends, we're gonna be right back in the thick of it. We're going to work with inner city and global partners. We're going to try and reach as many people as we can. This is where God planned it. We're going to roll up our sleeves and figure out what God wants us to do. And we're going to get our hands dirty. But we're going to be a church that is waiting. The answer for us is not the next president. The answer to us is not the end of abortion, as evil as it is. It's not the right president, it's not the end of abortion, it's not all these things we're trying to do. Yes, we need to be in the fight. The answer is Jesus Christ putting the government on his shoulders. And that's why we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're going to sing this song, let it wash over you, I'll come back and I'll close us in prayer.